welcome back to the Millennial Ag Podcast, where agriculture is always on tap and no topic is off limits. Thanks for joining us today, your co-hosts, Valine Cahorn and Catherine Lotspeech. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to episode number three in our May Mental Health series. Uh, This week, we are super duper excited to have Dr. Nora Felposh on with us. She has been a repeat guest and somebody who we just really, really look up to um, in the profession of mental health and are so excited to have her back on. She is a part of a dairy farm um, in, in Colorado and is an amazing mental health expert. She specializes with the college students, but has a huge tie to rural, rural agriculture. So we want to welcome Nora back. And if you could give us a quick, quick background on what you've been up to um, before we dive in. Sure. I'm happy to. Glad to be back. Glad to be here. Talking about mental health is is a, is a passion of mine, so it's always exciting when I can reach a, a bigger audience or be helpful. Um, a little disclaimer before we jump into the show, we will be talking about mental health. We will be talking uh, potentially about suicide as well, which can be really triggering and difficult for families that have been touched by it, with it which is many, many of us. Um, just know that um, there will be resources shared after the show. You can also um, call 988 to speak with someone at the National Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. That's now a new nationally uh, launched project. Um, And they actually don't just talk about suicide alley. They can just talk you through a mental health crisis or mental health concerns generally. Um, So they're a good resource as well as 211, which is actually a hotline that can connect you with local resources as well. So if you're feeling, uh, you know, upset or bothered or worried, or if this is really hitting close to home for you, don't hesitate to reach out and get that and get that support. Um, So so, yeah, I'm back. I am uh, kind of uh, a little busier than ever in my life. I um, I am the mother of four. I live on a, a dairy farm uh, with my husband, who's a, a third generation uh, farmer and uh, in, in Colorado. But also about two years ago, two and a half years ago, I came on as a consultant to a, a telehealth company. As we all know, telehealth is gotten huge, but at that time it was a really small thing. Actually, we didn't even know it was going to be a thing. Um, I was working with Michigan State University at that time, um, helping them with telehealth. They're a university that has a lot of uh, rural students that attend there. And so um, we talked about piloting telehealth uh, with Michigan State and they brought me in to kind of help build that program. I'm a psychiatrist, so um, so I could do sort of the medical piece of that. Um, and uh, during that time, started consulting with a small, a very small startup company uh, that was looking at doing telehealth for college students and actually embedding telehealth resources in existing resources on college campuses. This actually has some rural roots to it too, because um, in part we were doing that because rural uh, large land grant rural universities like uh, Michigan State, like, um, you know, Cornell, um, you know, the list goes on on Penn State, um, have a lot of, uh, of rural students and have a really hard time finding resources for those students. So um, we started out with one school, a pilot in one school and a, a, a number of providers that I knew personally and could count on one hand. Um, and then COVID hit. And I also think we brought a great product to the market that really focuses on quality and really focuses on access to care and de- decreasing stigma around mental health. Um, and we now are, gosh, I'm supervising a clinic of over well over 200 providers um, and we're in um, close to 60 schools and, and growing. So I'm really proud of being able to bring that, uh, bring that connection to schools, especially because I think that 
um, disproportionately impacts um, rural students because often those are the students that either they're working, like they're, I, I mean, my husband milked while he was in college, right? And so he was working and he was super busy and couldn't necessarily <clears throat> make a, a daytime appointment during business hours. Um, so we're able to offer, offer appointments on weekends and nights and we contract directly with the university. So the university helps to pay for that care. Um, and I think universities like everybody now is just recognizing more and more what an impact mental health health has on um, on functioning, on survival, really, it, it, on some level. Um, and, you know, COVID's been hard on a lot of people. I think it's hit the, the rural community particularly hard in terms of job losses and isolation. Um, and so, um, so yeah, so that's what I've been, that's what I've been doing over the last, uh, the last couple of years, um, but also always keep my ear to the ground in terms of what's going on in, in, in rural America and what we're doing to, to, you know, break down stigma and to increase access to services. And I think telehealth has been an absolute um, gift to rural communities because you no longer have to live um, within, you know, a three hour drive of a specialist really for, for, for any issue. But I think mental health specifically, a lot of mental health, um, a lot of the ways that we examine patients and work with patients um, comes with within our talk, right? We, 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 our talk is our healing process for, for many things. We also do medications and those I think are really valid and important in some, in some cases, but to get a really good diagnosis and to get um, connection with somebody who kind of understands what you're going through and can help guide you to the resources that you need. A lot of that can be done remotely over, over telehealth. So you no longer have to drive hours and hours or even try to find who's going to be good who isn't going to be good you know i think some of the um some of the 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 telehealth companies that are out there are really building some some pretty amazing networks that that rural folks can can access well <clears throat> nora we're again we're so glad that you have been able to come back to us especially with your extraordinarily busy schedule and you should absolutely be proud of what you've accomplished in such a short time um, especially for the industry that we're all a part of and communities that we're a part of and we hold so dear. Um, so you have been building resources for rural uh, rural university students, but you've also come across some really great stuff that um, will help, you know, rural communities as a whole. And as you just yeah. mentioned, those, those resources have been few and far between, um, limited access, all of those sorts of things. So um, could you go ahead and share with us about um, the Rural Health Info um, website that you were telling us about before we jumped on and yeah. all of the good things that they're doing and all of the amazing stuff that they have to offer? Yeah, happy to. And I think more and more of these resources are going to be available at people's fingertips. And I think, you know, especially if you can get access to the internet or, or have a library where you can get access to the internet, there's a lot of really good support and really good information out there that you no longer have to be in the place of whoever's producing it to be able to access it, um, or even to be able to access the care now. Um, I would say that I, I've had a whole team of people that have helped me build, you know, what we've what we've built. And uh, and I think that, that, that's, that speaks to the fact that the whole community really has to address um, address these issues. I think that's especially when we talk about stigma um, and things like that. The whole community has to decide that it's okay to be a human being. It's okay to have a brain, um, and it's okay to uh, to be honest about how you're feeling things and how you're experiencing things. Um, so that said, this rural health information hub was something I came about actually when I was kind of prepping for the show. I know I, I follow and track a lot of the college mental health stuff, but don't always um, specifically look at at rural uh, mental health information. But I actually 
was really impressed with this with this website. So they do a lot of things, including so they kind of start out with immediate resources. And those are the things that we mentioned at the beginning of the show, this 988 suicide crisis lifeline, the 211. But also they give you lots of statistics on what's going on in rural areas, both for substance use disorders and other mental health disorders. It's kind of interesting that we separate those two out still, like we act as if substance use is somehow different from other biological illnesses that affect the brain, which it actually isn't. This is actually very biological illness for sure. Um, but nonetheless, they they separate that out so you can kind of see the statistics and the trends. Um, and it's interesting because overall, mental illness, mental health troubles don't really... Um, they're because they are biological often in origin, they tend to statistically happen similarly across the whole population. But what's different about being in a rural area is a, I think sometimes the stigma can be more difficult because you can't be as anonymous in a rural area as you might be in a, in a larger urban area, which is I think both good and bad, right? I think that lack of anonymity also gives people the support and the ability to lean on people who know them and love them and know their family and have worked together and stayed together. But it also makes it a lot harder if you're worried about the stigma, because in small towns, everybody talks to everybody and everybody knows what's going on with everybody. Um, so uh, they talk a little bit on this. Um, so on this particular, this rural health info um, website about kind of the statistics and how that affects rural areas versus urban areas and how um, many fewer resources there are often in rural areas than in urban areas. So that once you've kind of gotten the courage up to identify that there's a problem going on and that you need some help with it, um, to actually find the resource of someone who can help you with that is really, really difficult, especially in rural areas. I think we're gaining on that with telehealth for sure, um, because, um, but because we can start to access um, more and more providers and start to get the providers themselves can get more access to trainings and toolkits and things like that. Um, uh, but, you know, well, this is a little off subject, but I think the licensing laws have um, are lagging far behind um, where they need to be in terms of providing rural people with access to care. So a lot of the licensing laws are built around very geographic limitations. Like, you know, I have I have patients that literally get in their car and drive across the border from one state to another to be able to see one of our providers. And there's no nothing about that provider that changes because they drove this person drove across the state line. But that's that's the way the laws are set up because they were built in the you know early turn of the century, mid-century, when seeing somebody who was a thousand miles away wasn't realistic. Um, whereas now, you know, actually we can do that really well. But so that accessibility, this and this going back to the website, they talk about accessibility and, and how hard it is sometimes for rural. rural uh, rural residents to get access, but also they list out a, a lot of really nice resources. So they have a mental health in rural communities uh, toolkit that's evidence-based. So you know that what you're getting is, is not, you know, is, is, is based in the latest research and what we actually know about mental health. There's a rural suicide prevention toolkit there too, which can be really helpful. And then they have at the bottom, they have toolkits for, for um, high school age students and for mental health resources and talking about suicide and preventing suicide at the high school level, which I think honestly, if we're gonna, if we're gonna accept that mental health is a really important part of who we are and how we function in the world, then, I mean, I think we need to start kind of talking about that, right? Talking about that with our kids, talking about that with our high schools, talking about how do you how do you watch each other? How do you take care of each other in terms of watching for what the signals and signs are when somebody um, is, is, not, is not feeling well or mentally isn't feeling well? So I think this is a great resource for folks who just wanna do a deeper dive and kind of find out more for themselves. 
about um, what they might do, what their community might do. And there's even some resources for um, rural healthcare providers, because I think a lot of times um, primary care are the only folks that you can really get access to in a rural area. And primary care can get really overwhelmed because they have so many other things they're already taking care of. And uh, their training isn't always, um, isn't always as broad as it needs to be to be able to take care of mental health effectively. Um, and primary care providers will tell you this. If you talk to them, they'll say, I, you know, I wish I could consult with somebody. That's the other thing that our company is doing is embedding psychiatric consultants at, at you know, rural universities where they can't get access to that so that we can use some of the nurse practitioner level um, uh, providers and some of the primary care providers uh, to take care of, 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 of folks, but they can still level up to, um, to a, a psychiatrist if, if there's particular questions or concerns that come up. So kind of, I think the last time we had you on was during COVID and we talked about, you know, some of the stresses that COVID had. And now that we're quote unquote through COVID or on the tail end and, and adapting, it's a part of our everyday life now, essentially. Um, are you seeing both with your students and rural um, a trend in a positive direction? Are we still struggling with with that mental health crisis, you know, of being, being home, losing jobs, that, yeah. that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, well, I think there are positive things that are happening and positive signs, including discussions like this. I think that one of the things that, that COVID, I mean, we are moving forward with destigmatizing um, mental health for everybody, including in rural areas. But when you talk about the economic impact of so many folks in rural areas losing their jobs, um, when you talk about how much the job market is shifting to be um, remote, in some ways that benefits rural areas because people can stay, um, you know, can stay and still work. Like I work in Manhattan, I live in rural Colorado, um, and I can I can commute instantly. But um, I also have access to, uh, I have a couple of things. I have a, a fairly unique degree, so that makes it really marketable and easy for me to be competitive with folks that are um, that are maybe closer geographically to where the jobs are. I don't, I, I have a, a very intellectual kind of job, right? I'm not building things and constructing things and manufacturing things, um, which you really need to be in person for. So I think, I think my point is that um, there are lasting um, ripples or maybe even waves that have been created by COVID in terms of people losing their jobs, that income was lost, you know, talking to, I've got kids in school and what I hear from the school is that kids are behind um, in their education, trying to get caught up around that. So we have a lot of work to do. And I think the stress of that work keeps the mental health concerns and crises kind of at the forefront. Um, while while it seems like there may be some positive trends in terms of uh, suicidality going down somewhat, it's still the second leading cause of death in in young people in this country, um, and it's still so the 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 folks that are most at risk for suicide um, still remains white, rural males over fifty, um, and so when you think about who are the folks in urban communities, or sorry, rural communities that have been really hard hit? A good number of them are white, rural uh, males um, over 50. Um, and so I think what I would say is that there are glimmers of hope and things that I think have gotten much, much better as a result of COVID, including things like telehealth access and including building out resources on the internet like this rural health info um, resource. Um, the 988 um, crisis resource has gone national. I don't know that COVID necessarily spurred that, but it's certainly something that um, we really see the value of. Um, 
but we have a lot of work to do. I think we have work to do around stigma. We have work to do around um, suicide prevention, and we have work to do around getting access to well-trained providers into rural areas. Um, and you know, I think uh, hopefully telehealth is going to take a big a big lead there. So, Nora, um, let's go back to uh, the the people most at risk for suicide in our country: white male men over the age of 50 and that uh I don't know if it's quite a correlation um but with the average demographic of the American farmer um I think that we've made headway at least in our generation millennials and I think in Gen Z as well and being more open about this um talking about our own experiences to others getting help hopefully sooner but <laughs> That demographic is not particularly well known for asking for help, for admitting that something might be wrong, for going to get help. Mm -hmm. um, and I know that all three of us are attached to loved ones in those demographics and we want to keep them whole and healthy. Yeah. And what for the, for those particular people, what what kind of approach or what sort of, you know, things might need to be being done to keep them safe? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. It's a hard question, I think. Um, you know, and, and every every family has their own dynamics. I don't know that there's one sort of hard and fast way to approach everybody in that demographic. But I, I think one of the things that we need to continue to do is talk about mental health. And I think that young people can really set an excellent example um, in terms of educating, in terms of talking about the fact that um, that, you know, mental health and physical health are one in the same thing, that our brains produce all of our experiences. So if we're, you know, if we're having an experience where we're feeling depressed or where we're feeling um, anxious, um, you know, the way that we think about that needs to shift. And I think that our, our young people, like, like both of you are doing a great job at starting to like start this conversation. I think the more comfortable we are at bringing this um, information out and talking about it, I think that can rub off on the folks in that demographic, sort of seeing that, you know, this is okay. I think if even one person can have the courage to speak about their experience and to explain it, um, that can make a really big difference. I think because, they, you know, people can kind of look and see that, gee, that person did it and that was okay. It really only takes one person to break the silence. Um, and sometimes that's hard, right? That's really hard to do. I've been to, um, I've been to funerals in rural areas for folks that completed suicide and, and have gone through the whole funeral without a single person mentioning mental health or mentioning that it was a suicide. Um, and I think the implication then is that this is something to be shamed about as opposed to, you know, you, in a cancer, if someone dies of cancer, we talk about it all the time. Gosh, cancer is a terrible illness. Oh, I'm going to do a run for cancer. You know, I'm going to wear a pink ribbon forever. Um, and I think we have to shift the way that we think about mental health and realize that this that depression is an illness that kills people um not people are weak and they die of depression um you know we would never say people are weak and they die of cancer um and you know and, and people will say well there are things you can do yes there are things that you can do there's lifestyles there's habits there's nutrition that can help with this but that's true of heart disease that's true of cancer right that's true of all many of the other physical illnesses that we have and yet we still don't blame those folks for succumbing to the disease um, so I think talking about it more, I think sharing resources, something, the thing that's really nice about online resources is that you can access them and look at them privately. So you don't necessarily, that's the same thing with telehealth, right? You don't have to ever worry about running into your therapist or your psychiatrist at the grocery store if you're doing telehealth, because they don't, they, they don't have to be located in your same area. They don't have to be part of your circle. 
Um, that said, I also think there's something for face-to-face. And I think there are, you know, good people out there who are doing great work in mental health in rural areas. And you won't know about them if you don't ask a trusted person like, hey, you know, hey, Nora, I know that you had some trouble with this. Um, is there somebody that you recommend or is there somebody that's helped you? Um, and just having the courage to say that it's amazing to me. You know, I'm a as a psychiatrist, people kind of, as soon as they find that out, they sort of clam up, you know, especially in social settings, but it's amazing how many people I've talked to experiencing the same exact thing who are convinced that if somebody else knew what they were experiencing, they would think they were crazy. They would judge them. And I I literally had a situation in residency where I had two people in the same profession working together as partners in the same profession. Both of them were struggling with depression and both of them were convinced if the other one found out that they wouldn't want to be partners anymore. And it's like, of course I can't say anything. And I'm like, oh, this is, but I mean, I think that genuineness is, is, is okay. And I think it would be surprising to me. Uh, I think we all sort of, we can help break down those barriers by having the courage to speak up and by having the courage to create the space to ask about these things. And I think, um, I think especially with suicidality, I think it's a, you know, there's a, there's a myth out there that if you ask someone about suicide, that they're going to be like, oh, I hadn't thought of that. Oh, maybe I'll do that. You know, like that just doesn't happen. Right. And so, you know, asking people, are you okay? Like you seem, you seem like you're having a hard time, It's you know, naming it, like, you know, being a person over 50 in rural ag, it's hard. Your body stops being able to do some of the things it could do at 20 and 30. And I, I think often, um, you know, as we were reflecting on this before we we started the, the the podcast was, you know, I think a lot of folks in that generation are very much wedded to the idea that your value is in what you physically can accomplish. Like the value of a steer is, you know, in it, or, or, or like a, a cow is in the fact that she can produce calves or she can produce milk. And once that goes away, the value of that animal kind of goes away. And I think that gets sort of embedded in our psyche as rural people that if I can't lift something or if I can't walk or if I can't carry something, I'm becoming a burden on the, on the, uh, on my family or on the business, as opposed to, I continue to be an important, valuable person over time. And I think that burdensomeness is part of what contributes to, to suicide completion is this feeling like I'm actually doing my family a favor by keeping them from having to take care of me when I'm now a dead weight, I'm not contributing back. Um, and a lot of us, you know, as I think a lot of farmers too, they start as tiny little kids they're like they're like born farmers right uh, i remember my husband explaining this to me when we um when we were getting married he was like you know being farmers uh, being a farmer is almost like being jewish like it's like it's the way you think and the way you eat and the way you show up in the world and the way you worship and like it's a whole identity it's not just a job and so i think when you can't it, it means you know, everybody struggles in mid and later life with losing your working life and trying to find value in not being productive but farmers at 50 have been doing that for like 43, 44 years, you know, it's not something that they grew up and said, I think I'm going to be a farmer and now I'm going to go to school for farming. And there's so many other options out there, you know, it's, it's part of their whole identity. Um, and I think that's something that maybe we have to reconsider in, in rural America as well, that just the assumption that because you were born into farming, it's the best fit, um, I don't know. We may have to revisit that. We may have to revisit that as that as well. I, that's probably a controversial thing to say in that community. <laughs> but I mean, really, and and I think also that's just, you know, when 
I think also in the often in in farming families, you see a real hierarchy between the new people coming in and the middle aged people and the older people. The older people don't want to step away because it's their whole identity. And they probably waited like 45 or 50 years to get to the ability to be the owner and to be the person who's making decisions or running things. They're not ready to give that up yet. Um, and yet you've got the younger people coming in who want to step in. It's, there's a lot of dynamics there that are really complicated. Um, and that's where I think also having a therapist or having a you know mental health provider can kind of help you think that through and plan that um, and be thoughtful about how those interactions go and coach you around how to interact with, with folks, I think can be really, really helpful. I, I can resonate so much to, to everything you said, because yes, from the time I was little, I was on horseback or, you know, mom and dad were dragging me through the pastures to bring cows in, um, and, and how I never wanted to leave, but also how are we like, I, I have my, my engineering job, which is ag related. And then I go home and there's a lot of times I can go home and cook and stuff and, and, mm-hmm kind of chill but there's also that added I need to help my husband with the farming or the calves or change water because there's a fire burning tonight or you know yeah. jumping in and so it's 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 more than just eight to five most of the time to get yeah. everything done too and so you for my family specifically I see um burnout and ti- like a lot more tiredness especially this time of year we're headed you know we're finishing calving and so forth but I trying to be a little more intentional about naming it, especially with the, you know, the older generation too, because they're, they're wanting to retire, but they're not quite, you know, and just all this stuff and how. They don't want to lose their value. And they've spent their whole life valuing doing farm work instead instead of being a person. I think that's sort of like the, that's kind of the, 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 the developmental stage of aging is sort of going from being a doer to being a beer. And I, I think that's, that's hard for everybody, but I think it's particularly hard for ag. And there's a rhythm and a cycle to ag where it's like you plant something and you see it grow and you see it harvested and you see the next generation. It's got a rhythm to it. And we don't have a, a role often for somebody who's not actually contributing to that cycle. Um, so I think that, that makes it, um, that makes it really hard as well. It's interesting. My husband and I were just joking around because we were talking with, uh, some, some friends of ours who are not in ag and they were, and they asked us like, so what are you doing for your vacations this year? And we were like, well, we, we could probably get a long weekend if it rains. And then, you know, maybe over Christmas, we could take a couple of days. We've never, we have never in our married life taken more than I think we took some time off for our honeymoon and that was like a big deal. And that was 23 years ago. You know what I mean? We'll take like a little chunk here, a little chunk there. And it's often like, okay, well, you know, well, this is when corn was planted. So we think this is when harvest going to be. So if we're going to go to a wedding, we could probably go this weekend, but not that weekend, you know, that kind of stuff that I don't know that, you know, this idea that we retire, you know, that, that, that you have leisure, that you that you spend time doing something you enjoy just for the sake of enjoying it is really a foreign concept to anybody who's been able to stay afloat in ag. Oh my gosh, Nora. <laughs> you were speaking the absolute truth. You were speaking yeah. the absolute truth. And I everything you just described is in my immediate family. And I'm not trying to call them out here. I love yeah. them dearly. They work yeah. their tails off. Yeah. It's been the same for them for 45 years. And yeah. it's the same, you know, for my generation who's back yeah. on the farm. And 
it's not healthy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it can be really tiring. I mean, there are, and, and I think, you know, people in ag also love what they do. Mm-hmm. It's not the same as punching a, a time clock. You know, it's like, you don't really count up all the hours because if you counted up all the hours, you would just be like, this is ridiculous. Human beings, <laughs> you know, um, like if you were paid hourly as a farmer, I mean, we would be like all uh, retiring at 30, but, um, <laughs> but, but I think that is a real mindset shift. That's really hard in terms of like, I see this in my, my, uh, my, my husband again, right. It's like, um, what are we doing Saturday? Um, well, I think we can actually take a little time off. Oh, great. I'm going to mow the lawn and I'm going to clean out the, the gutters. And then I'm going to, I'm just going to go check these three pivots. Cause I'm not sure they're running right. And now it's raining. So it's like, oh, I better just go check that pond. It's like, that was the day off. Right. <laughs> day off, you know, and it's like, wow, I, I didn't actually, wasn't actually physically with boots in the muck from six 30 in the morning till nine at night. I, I actually came in a couple of times and ate something and said hello to people. Um, you know, so that's considered like your day off mm-hmm. and you're right. It's, it is, it's tiring. And I think also, you know, the, the farming world is competitive now. I think it's always been hard, but before we had computers and before we had electricity and those kinds of things, that rhythm, there was no way that somebody would be juggling an engineering job and trying to support farming. Right. There's no way that somebody would be a farmer on the scale that we that we often farm now, which and sometimes the scale can actually help with this because you can get more people involved. But when the lights went out, that was the end of your day. You you physically couldn't do anything else, whereas now we can come home and check emails and we can, you know, like do all this other stuff that is really taxing. And we don't we can work 24 seven. My, you know, Chuck's got the, the pivot stuff all in his phone. So even when we're on vacation, he can still check on the pivots and, and he does, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, well, um, and the, those, the field, we use field net out here and yeah, same thing. It's dinging is we're trying to go to bed or, or exactly. something like that. And it's like, oh yeah. no, the pivot's stuck or we need yes. to go do this. Yeah. Right. And, and you probably, some of those things you probably do need to do, but I think also, you know. I, I think one of the things that we've tried to really shift our mindset because we were a relatively big operation now and we've tried to understand that, you know, hiring someone to help or working with someone and actually turning over some of those responsibilities to them is actually a good thing. That's it's actually okay. And there's a whole community, it takes a whole community to farm. And I think that that idea that I have to do it myself or it's never going to get done, I think is is maybe a little outdated. And it's one of those things that we have to let go of in order to create the space that we need to enjoy our lives because ultimately you only get one, you know, and then you're, it's it's short. No, I, and that's one thing I, AgPro has taught me too, is like training that next, your replacement almost so that you can do something different or bigger or yeah. travel or, you know, change, yeah. change roles. And I think, Sometimes in, in ag, we don't think of it as a business. Like it, we think of it as a business, but we don't think of it as management, you know, the typical structure that comes with say an engineering company or a accounting firm or something like that with hierarchy and levels and you work your way up, you know, type thing. Yeah. Well, if you look at the CEO of a, of a successful business, they're not the ones actually doing the engineering work anymore. They're now like overseeing and facilitating and they do a lot more thinking than they do doing. 
Um, and that's just, that's a, a natural and difficult transformation for anybody who goes from being a single operator to having a broader staff or even the next generation, right? To, you know, you have to hand, that's really hard to hand like a $100,000 tractor over somebody whose diapers you changed. It's like, oh my gosh, like, you're not old. I don't care if you're 30. You are not old enough to have responsibility for this machine. I have seen you make really stupid decisions when you were four, you know? And it's like, it's, uh, it, that's really, it's real hard to do. And I, I do think that having like some support and some discussion around that, um, you know, can, can be really, really helpful. And I do think a good mental health person can guide you through that process. Um, and, and that can, that can be really life, life-changing, I think for, for people. Yeah, I know. I mean, I, I am no longer involved in, I, I don't farm right now. Maybe someday it'll change. Yeah. Um, but I know that um, a, a good provider has can make a world of difference in your life. And I've been very fortunate to, to have had good providers. And to go back to what you said a little bit ago about um, it being personal and in the interest of, of getting courageous, Nora, um, when I was really struggling with my mental health uh, four or five years ago, um, I, I needed help very badly, but I was terrified to tell my boss because I was convinced I was going to lose my job. Mm -hmm. And he responded by um, reaching out to you and you have connected me with the best providers I've ever had. That's so awesome. that's, that's very personal. <laughs> um, but I say it so that hopefully someone will hear this and know that you won't get fired. <laughs> or and if you do, you're working for the wrong person. Also that, you know, also, I mean, yes. really you're working for the wrong person. Yep. Yeah, for sure. And, and that there is help there and there's good help. Mm -hmm. No, I, I appreciate you sharing that. It takes a lot of courage and I, yeah, there really is. And you, you, the, you have to open your mouth. It's like I said, you know, I think closer to the beginning, you have to ask like, you know, every, this is so common, right? This is such a common thing that people are struggling with. But if you talk to three people, at least one of them is going to have had a similar experience. Um, and so the more that we talk about this in the same way that if you were, I don't know, you know, you're, you're having a surgery done, you're going to be like, Hey, you know, fill in the blank. I, I know you had this surgery done. Who did you go to? Did they do a good job? It's the same. It's really the same thing. Um, and it, it's absolutely can be absolutely transformative. Mm -hmm. Yes, I I can speak to that one hundred percent. Well, Nora, we in the interest of time, and I know both you and Catherine have to jump. Um, we we so thank you for coming on, and I just I wish we could just go grab a glass of wine and continue. I would love that. <laughs> I would love to. We'll have to do that when we're all in the same place someday, for sure. That, that would be, be so fun. Mm -hmm. And you've been, you've been a great resource for Millennial Ag and for both Catherine and I. And um, what would you like to leave listeners with? And is where can people find resources and help, especially in rural areas? Um, yes. I know you've listed a couple of them, but I know it's hard to find providers in, in su Southern Idaho. So where can yeah. somebody... Yeah. Go. Yeah, absolutely. So I think as far as resources go, I, I know I don't know if you have show notes or where you, places you can share this, but this rural health information 
hub um, really does seem to have a lot of a lot of great resources. So if that's the place that someone wants to start, just to feel like they have a better background, is the first thing. I think the second thing I would say is that um, when you're speaking up about your own mental health experiences or you act as if that's not something to be ashamed of, you have no idea who is seeing that and benefiting from that. You're probably saving a life. Honestly, when you look at the suicide rates, um, you you are you are potentially saving a life. And you know, even though nobody's going to pop up and be like, "Me too," you know, at a at a meeting of farmers, I can tell you how many times I am pulled aside by so many people who say, "I need help getting connected," or "My brother needs help getting connected," or "My kid needs help getting connected," or something like that. And you know that if so, saying those things out loud is is, is an act of of courage. And it's, it's an act of, um, of moving this problem. Like we're, we're, it's a part of the solution. Like you're being one tiny little part of the solution when you have the courage to, to speak up and to talk to people and to ask how people are. Um, so I think that would be my, my second, my second point. And then I think, you know, the third thing is that, um, you know, if, if somebody responds in a way that you don't, appreciate like if somebody is you know condescending about it or somebody does act like it means you're crazy or something like that that's on them that's not on you right they're wrong you know and you're gonna do that right you're gonna do that your whole life like you'll come across somebody who has different beliefs than you do and they will challenge your beliefs and they're wrong for you right and in the same way you can do the same thing with mental health you know as you do with you know, fill in the blank, other values that you hold very dear that you wouldn't compromise on. Um, you never question whether you should be somebody who lies or somebody who cheats or somebody who steals. Like if somebody said, oh, well, you know, nobody else does that. Or you'd be like, well, I'm not going to interact with you anymore. You've got a pretty narrow view of the world. You're you're not ethical. But that's the same as true. If you're, if you're explaining how, what your experience is like, that is your experience. And if somebody is, is belittling that or somebody who is shaming that, that shows their lack of good values, not yours, not your lack of value. I love that. I absolutely love that. That shows their lack of value, not yours. Yeah. And you're not responsible for it. You're not yeah. responsible for, for their lack of value. Which is easier said than done, right? <laughs> easier said than done. It's great to have a little quip. Now we have all go out in the world and be like, guess what, Auntie So and So? I'm seeing a psychiatrist and a therapist. It's so helpful. And you know what I mean? Like, we gotta all, all go out and do it. But I think the more of us that do, the more we'll have each other's backs and the more it will be something that's common and comfortable, which I think what's happening with the younger generation. Yeah. Yeah. No, a hundred hundred thousand bazillion percent. Um, I think it's you know, and I could just unpack, like we could dive into a whole nother rabbit trail with that. Um, yeah. and, and carrying other people's burdens around with you and their, their values, but we can't again, thank you enough, Nora, for taking an hour out of your busy schedule to join us, um, and, and talk with us about rural mental health and mental health in general. And, and we can't thank you enough for all the work you do in the world either. Cause you've, I know you've given a lot of people courage to speak up and been a good resource to them. So thank you again for, for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for doing these podcasts. They're really important. And you're definitely make everybody who's listening to this, you're, you're changing their brain. You're changing the way <laughs> things a little bit.
Perfect. Well, listeners, we thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of the Millennial Ag Podcast. Um, We're here to support and love on you as well. So if you have questions on the resources Nora um, brought up today, we'll we'll put them in the show notes. Um, But you can also email us at talktous at millennialag.com. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and try to stay up to date on our direct messages. So feel free to drop us a line and let us know what you think. Till next week, we are Millennial Ag. If you or someone you know needs help with mental health challenges or substance abuse, please reach out. Here are some resources to consider. Lifeline Chat and Text is a service of the 988 Suicide Crisis Lifeline, connecting individuals with crisis counselors for emotional support and other services via web chat or texting 988. Again, that number is 988. The American Psychological Association has many great resources for whatever distress you may be experiencing. Visit APA.org to find resources including the Crisis Text Line, text HOME to 741-741, Narcotics Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous, Gamblers Anonymous, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration National Helpline, 800-662-4300. Again, the number for the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline is 988. The Crisis Text Line number is texting HOME to 741-741. Please, please reach out for help if you are hurting. You are loved. You are worthy. You are needed. You are wanted. You don't have to do this alone. With love and hope, Catherine and Valine.